It's episode 29 of the Improv London podcast with this week's guest, Lewis Harrison Barker. This ain't gonna be easy. Welcome to episode 29. I had a great time talking to Lewis. We discuss his work as a hospital radio DJ, explore how he feels about improvising Shakespeare with impromptu Shakespeare, touch upon his improvised puppetry of glitch, find out what it's like being an adult baby, and discover how he's set to blend terror and improv in the cabin. Side recording, we're not going to use this bit, obviously. Just getting used to being recorded. I'm yeah. sure you're very much used to being recorded. Uh, I've, uh, I do hospital radio. You do so, hospital radio? Uh, yeah. Tell me about Harlow Hospital Radio, live with Lewis, Mondays, 7 till 9. Really? Yeah. Wow, how did you get into that? Uh, I did student radio when I was at university, and then, um, yeah, I, I missed it. So I just contacted, and they were really welcoming, and I yeah, started doing it. So which hospital do you do hospital radio? Princess Alexandra Hospital in Harlow. Oh, right, cool. So, I mean, how much artistic control do you have over your radio station, your radio station or radio program? There, I can do whatever I want within reason. Uh, it has Sorry. to fire off com rules, obviously. It's still licensed, so you know, no swearing and stuff like that. Nothing inappropriate. And then the only other thing is, I was told that I'm not allowed to play Stairway to Heaven <laughs> or uh, Staying Alive. <laughs> And I imagine it's because Stairway to Heaven's just become such a cliche, everyone's really tired of it. Yeah, obviously, and just they don't like the Bee Gees. Yeah, so exactly. It, yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm not saying I agree with those rules, but I understand why those rules are uh, there. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure I've definitely played Staying Alive out of spite. Because <laughs> I, I saw it was on the system, which makes... Because the radio station is 24 hours, but there's only four hours of live programming a night. So, um, for the rest of the day, it's all either pre-programmed stuff, so stuff that's been recorded a long time ago and yeah. just comes around. Because you're not in hospital for long, so you don't notice. <laughs> uh, so, it's either that or... And even if you did notice, it's not your biggest concern, is it? Your biggest worries are, oh, I've heard this before. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think this is a repeat. Yeah, and, there's, and the rest of it is like, so there'll be an hour of music, and it'll either be broken down, it'll either be anything or broken down by genre decade or whatever and for that the computer just goes okay i've got an hour what can i put which with jingles equals exactly an hour wow um and so staying alive is on the system <laughs> so at random it gets played so i thought well if the computer can play it why can't i <laughs> and, and also like nowadays uh, staying alive rather than just being about you know dying uh, it's also the thing for uh, doing CPR. When you do CPR, you do it to the beat of staying alive, so you get uh, the right rhythm. Uh, so I thought, well, it's, you know... Public service, in a sense. Yeah, you know, exactly. you're, you're keeping them alive by playing that. That's great. Yeah, so why not play a bit of BGs? So what's the format of your show, then? Are you doing requests? Have you got funny games you play? <laughs> I do requests, in theory. <laughs> in theory, but you never get them. I never get them. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, um, if you want to give out the phone number now... <laughs> Uh, it's star 800 from your Hospedia phone. Uh, <laughs> For all those listening in... At Princess Alexandra <laughs> Hospital right now. Do, yeah. do give a, do us a request. Yeah, it's... Um, the, when we do... We sometimes do a, a request show on a Sunday. So there'll be someone in the studio and... Uh, then about three people will go around a couple of wards for an hour or so and take down people's requests, write them down. And then the second half of the show, we'll just play all of them and oh, right. you know messages people want and all that sort of thing. And then the idea is that whenever there's live programming on, you can just call that number. And if you want to hear a song, if we can get hold of it, we'll play it for you, yeah. like within reason again. Right. Um, but yeah, in a year, a year and a half since I joined them, I haven't had one request. I like to think it's because the music I'm already playing hey, is so all, good. Hey, I'm here with a broken leg. They're already playing all my favourites. I don't yeah. need to give you a Lewis a ring. Exactly. It's got me covered for my favourite songs. Absolutely. That's what I think. Uh, but I've got some. I've got some little. Um, uh, some features I do. Yeah, yeah tell me so, about your features. Yeah. So I've got one that I do. Uh, well, I've got three. One that I do occasionally is called Bad Dad Joke of the Week. <laughs> uh, and I call my dad on Skype because <laughs> my dad tells the worst <laughs> jokes. And the thing that's really annoying about it as well is because, you know, doing comedy and everything, 
whenever he tells people that I do comedy, the next words he always says is, of course, he steals all my material. (laughs) Dad doesn't know what improv is uh, or comedy, apparently. Uh, So, yeah, I call him up. He tells a joke while I play the step toe and some theme underneath. Um... Then uh, I've got another one called Music. Music. Yeah, music. Nice. Uh, which Andrew Gentili actually did a little voice track for me to use <laughs> as my jingle. Uh, where I get some weird news from around the world and I play a song inspired by it. So um, there, was, uh, there was one not that long ago about uh, someone getting... Uh, the, I think it was a, a hunter in America was setting a trap and they got themselves caught in it um they just were an idiot and so of course i played caught in a trap you know like you know uh, uh all that sort of thing and then the other one is uh, and vinyly and vinyly which nice. also has a jingle and that's that's at the end of my show and because the the hospital radio has been going for 40 years wow so and they've they've never thrown anything out so they've got a wall and i mean a wall of vinyl yeah. And I love vinyl, so um, and they've got we've got a uh, a deck in the studio. So at the end of the thing, <laughs> I just pull something. I, I literally will pull a chunk of stuff out of the wall, go through it, and go, oh, I like that song, and then play it at the end of the show <laughs> on vinyl. And quite often, I'll end up playing it at the wrong speed <laughs> to begin with. So you'll you'll just all of a sudden have like um, I don't know, like say it's Wham or something, uh, and. Uh, it'll you know you uh, where it should be jitterbug whatever it would be <laughs> and then you have the bit where I press the button and goes jitterbug yeah so. I mean it's a very classic John Peel uh, move to play a record that yeah but I'm pretty speed. sure he did it on purpose you reckon? well yeah you know. I like to think so <laughs> when he played Wham <laughs> yeah yeah I'm sure I'm not sure John Peel played Wham very often we, we've got a uh, um, yeah, an audience that's a, of a very specific age. Right. So they like it. The, when we do get requests, the most requested artist is Frank Sinatra. Because I was going to ask, what's your Wham and Abba? Is it Wham and Abba? Yeah, it's... Uh, it's Frank Sinatra. That, that's the thing that's most requested. So, really? Yeah. But then also you get a lot of people like Ollie Murs and stuff like that. Mm. So uh, it's it's trying to get that mix. Uh, and also then, on top of that, trying to play so- play songs that I like. Wow. Because I don't listen to Wham. I don't listen to Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra. I, don't, I definitely don't listen to Wally Murs. <laughs> so it's uh, about trying to sneak a bit of, yeah. uh, you know, I know, Arctic Monkeys or something. In yeah, sorry, Oli. I know you're a big fan of the show. And, yeah, of uh, you know, but popular to everyone. <laughs> uh, we've really broken up Oli Murs. He's, yeah. No, it's, it's all right, Oli. It's all right. I mean, you know. Stuart will give you a hug. Yeah, well, I'm pretty, you know, I think anyone, I give anyone a hug, really. No, let's not test that. Uh, <laughs> so, we... <laughs> that that's how this has started. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, I I did once audition to um, be in hospital radio, uh, but I didn't... You auditioned? Re- yeah, well, oh, yeah, no, that makes it sound like I had a tape and everything. It, no, it was probably, an interview is probably more... Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, no, I had an interview... Um, and they didn't select me. Really? Yeah. Oh, you should come along to Princeton. We'll take anyone. <laughs> if you've got a finger with which to press the play button, <laughs> then you're in. I don't know if Mayday Hospital in Croydon has more demand to uh, <laughs> spin the wheels of steel. Um, but yeah, <laughs> but, you know, it hasn't held me back. It's made me the man I am yeah. today. We can't we, all be successful like you. Um, <laughs> Where should we start? There is oh well, I should probably well we've already started, but uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. <laughs> How do you wish to be addressed, Lewis? I think it's a good start. <laughs> I mean, you could call me whatever you want, really, but I think Lewis is generally a. My parents seem to like it, so... Um... <laughs> I'll do that then. That's great, Lewis. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Stuart. We've both had busy days. Yes. <laughs> do you want to tell the listeners what you've been doing today? 
so it is now 25 past four and between the hours of 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. I was uh, in an impromptu Shakespeare rehearsal. So yeah, I've been improvising in iambic pentameter right, for the bulk of today. <laughs> and how was that? Uh, it was good. It was. Um, it takes me a while. And I find this so. I find this with impromptu Shakespeare because it's brand new to me. I I haven't been part of the company long, uh, and improvising in iambic is a new skill to me as well. It's it's similar to improvising musically in terms of you've got the verse and trying to structure things in and all that sort of stuff. But there's loads of I want to say rules, but not really rules, uh, conventions about how uh, sentences are structured, sort of words, and just things like when do you use you, thou, the, that sort of thing, um, and words that just they wouldn't use then. So you've got all of these things going on, and whenever we have a rehearsal, the rehearsal start at 11, I think it takes me until at least lunchtime <laughs> to sort of that part of my brain to wake up and go, oh, okay. Because it, it can be really, really difficult you're doing a scene. And if you're really having to think about that, then that's it. The scene takes twice as long as it needs to. And just nothing happens. So the uh, first sort of two hours <laughs> of any impromptu Shakespeare, from my point of view, like the other guys are great. But from my point of view, it's just like, oh, what am I doing? Oh, oh I can't. And it's the... Um, the uh, imposter complex, oh, right, yeah, yeah. you know, you're just in the room thinking everyone else knows what they're doing and I'm just faking it, and <laughs> not even faking it well. <laughs> and I only hope that there's at least one or two other people in that room that are thinking the same I'm thing. Sure Otherwise, it's not, an, it's not a complex. <laughs> you are just an imposter. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure that there must be other people feeling the same way as there are in every rehearsal and indeed every drop-in and workshop. Yeah, the the weird thing, and this you know, this is just generally how I operate. I, I have an imposter complex in general, but uh, is when I'm teaching. Oh, so right. I'll be here at the nursery running like a May Day's drop in or something, and I'll just be the back of my mind thinking, "Don't let any of them know you're not as clever as you look." <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I try to make it a rule not to, uh, and I always have done since I uh, started teaching really early on. I always try and make it a rule to not, not improvise in a class right <laughs> because if i improvise in a class and i make the mistakes that i'm telling people not to then what right do i have to teach you not to do those things ah. so um it's kind of a status thing but yes. it's also um yeah I, I think for me that's a lot of sort of the trick of teaching is faking it <laughs> <laughs> and so it, uh, little things like that and um, you know, like people will often ask, like, if I say, oh, maybe that wasn't the best choice to have made because it led to this, you know, they'll say, what would I, what should I have done? What would you have done sort of thing? And the answer is usually, honestly, I probably would have done that. <laughs> but now having seen the effect that had, I can tell you that what in hindsight I would have done is X. Yeah. So what inspired you to get to do Shakespeare then? Uh, they had an opening. <laughs> um, <laughs> right, okay. Now I've seen, uh, I've seen impromptu Shakespeare a couple of times and uh, I did uh, my degree in drama. Right. And uh, all this. So I, I've grown up with Shakespeare and learning it and studying it and loving it, all that sort of thing. Um, really big fan. Like I go to Stratford at least every other year at, at, as a minimum to go see the stuff there and the Globe and all, all sorts of stuff. So I do really, really love it. Um, and then after seeing them a couple of times, um, Jen... Uh, Jenny Rowe told me that they were doing some auditions and they were looking for new company members because they're looking to expand and all sorts. Uh, and did I want to audition? Yes, of <laughs> course. Um, they, you know, I, I mean, I say yes to everything anyway, but that was just an easy, <laughs> uh, an easy answer. So, yeah, so I, I, I went along and um, sort of the rest is history, really. Did an audition, got a recall audition. Uh, and now I'm a fledgling member of the company. So cool. it's, yeah, 
it, it's something I've had on my radar for a while. I like challenges as well. Yeah. So, um, because you learn stuff, but you can't really put into practice until you're in a company that does it. So yes. I learned musical improv, and but then I couldn't really get better at it without joining a company that does musical improv. Because yes. no matter how many classes you can... I probably shouldn't be saying this as a teacher, but, you know, classes can only get you somewhere. They can give you the skills that you need or at least an awareness of them. But what you need is for that to become muscle memory. Yes. And so you need to be in a group that's doing that regularly. And your choices are either, uh, often, are either to uh, be lucky, right place, right time, and get into a group that's already doing those things, or to go, you know what, I am making that group. Mm. I want to learn how to do this, or I'm going to get other people that do too and make that group. Uh, and that's what happened with Music Box, what happened with uh, Impromptu Shakespeare. Uh, I wanted to get good at genre and stuff like that, so I joined the May Days uh, last year in Edinburgh for Oh Boy, the Improvised Quantum Leap Show, because that worked very interestingly with genre and structure and all that sort of thing. Um, yeah, and... The, and on the flip side of things, I, for about two years, was thinking, you know, it'd be really good if we had a improvised, um, an improvised Eurovision show. It'd be really fun to do. I wish, I really hope that someone does it so that I can be a part of it. <laughs> uh, and I spoke to Steve Rowe about it. And um, I've been listening to, your, uh, to the podcast as well. And the amount of times that someone goes, so I spoke to Steve Rowe. Yes. And he said... But yeah, I spoke to Steve, and uh, I was basically trying to get him to organise it. <laughs> this is pretty much the pattern, I think. People speak to Steve Rome thinking, he'd be a good person to organise this thing yeah. that I'd like to happen. And then Steve bats it straight back. Yeah. <laughs> he, he does some weird Jedi trick. Because <laughs> I was on the phone to him, and we had a really long conversation about it, about how the format might work, about the structure, and everything <laughs> like that. And then at the end of the conversation, he said... Okay, so you can do that on the 17th of June. <laughs> what? Oh, God. And then, you know, and then it was like, fine, well, I guess I'm doing this then. And, yeah, so I did it. Uh, and the same with uh, The Cabin, which we've got coming up, uh, Improvised Horror. Uh, I wanted to I wanted to work on horror and see how that would work, trying to do really grounded horror improvised uh, so I spoke to Jules about it <laughs> in Edinburgh, uh, saying, oh, this would be a good thing. And um, yeah, and so now it's a nursery original show that I'm directing. So yeah, it's just a lot of, oh, I want to challenge myself. I want to try something new. And then either looking for that opportunity or making it yourself. Cool. Uh, I want to talk about the cabin in a second, but let's just go back to improvision. So for those who haven't seen it, can you explain the format of the show? And also, were there any things that were particularly easy or particularly difficult when you had that format? Yeah, so the the format is we have a full live band. So we have a five, no, four-piece band. We have guitar, bass, keys, and uh, percussion. Usually that's uh, Joe Samuels on keys and MDing. Uh, we have Tom Hodge on bass. We have Dan Atfield or Will Dixon on guitar. They swap and change. And we have Hannah Davies on percussion. Uh, and then I stand up and I'm a, trans, a generic trans-European host. <laughs> so I stand with a horrible jacket and an even worse accent. <laughs> and uh, I host the show and we have, uh, depending on how long we have that night, where we've got the whole night, half a night, whatever, we have a number of groups that are genuine groups from the improv scene, where it's uh, whether it's May Day, Science Living Things, Music Box, uh, Joystick, like, either groups that both are and aren't musical improvisers and they come in costume and they won't know what country they are <laughs> they won't know what song they're like the name of the song they're singing they won't know the genre of the song they're singing until literally seconds before they step on stage wow um the country's drawn at random and then the others the title and the genre is uh, an ask for like i ask the audience for them and then literally as soon I'll say, now welcome to stage, these guys singing this song, and the band will start before they're even on stage. So they don't, <laughs> there's no reprieve. Um, but it, yeah, so it's really good. So the thing that was surprisingly easy uh, is getting enough people to fill a bill. Uh, p 
people, we don't often get a chance in improv to improvise with a full live band. No. Or, you know, for the guys that aren't musical improvisers, they don't often get a chance to try that skill in front of an audience without expectation. Yes. Like, you know, yes. they, they don't have to worry about a narrative or anything. Like you can do a song, it can be a terrible song, but the audience is still going to love it because it's a song. Yes. You know, and sometimes there are terrible songs at Eurovision. Yes. So it, it all works. Uh, so there's a lot of groups that and people that are really happy to do it and uh, always say yes and that sort of thing, uh, as long as they're available. That's easy. The hard bit is... Trying to, the hard bit of first, but I think it's sort of now. Now we've done a few of them. We know how to, or I know how to work it. Is trying to make sure that it's super fun because I really hate the idea of competition in improv. Mm, we should yeah, all be working too. together and everything like that. And um, but it has to be a competition because that's what Eurovision <laughs> yes. is. So we do. Uh, so it's, it's trying to keep that fun and light-hearted and all of that without anyone even having the chance to think this is a real competition because I'm I'm competitive naturally so I think if I was one of these groups if I was in one of these groups I'd be there really genuinely wanting to win <laughs> even though it means nothing it does nothing I mean it would mean you were the best group there that evening so you'd be better than all these other improvisers yeah exactly and it's <laughs> It's a horrible thought. And, uh, I, like I said, I'm really competitive, so I have to watch out. I have to think to myself, would I think that? And then try and stop it. So the thing that we tend to do is um, the audience, we have two scores for each group. Um, the audience give them a score just by cheering, and then we pick out one person from the audience who's our independent Swiss judge. <laughs> they get their own little badge with a Swiss flag on it, and they get the numbers uh, 1 to 12, missing out 9 and 11, because that's how Eurovision works. And uh, I tell them they're only allowed to use each number once. Right. So they have to like, use their 12 wisely and yes. all of that. Uh, however, the way that that's worked brilliantly in the past, and this is without me telling them, is someone will use the 12, the audience will give them a 12, and so that's a maximum, you can't, yeah, you can't yeah. get higher than that, yeah. but then later on there'll be an act that this Swiss judge preferred, so on their 10, they'll write a 2 on the end, <laughs> or they'll hold up the 10 and the 2, so it's 102, <laughs> uh, and things like that. So you end up with ridiculous scores. You'll end up going right down from someone getting 3.5 <laughs> to someone getting an average score of 78. Um, so, it, yeah, so that ends up taking all of that out of it. Um, and then when we do, we try and do like a big one where we, uh, every... May, the day before the real Eurovision, uh, and we'll record little video clips and stuff. So last year, Mike Hutchison and I went around London for two days uh, filming, like, basically travel pieces, but as if each of these famous London landmarks was something else from Europe. Right. So the, uh, <laughs> the uh, London Eye was a Dutch windmill, for instance. <laughs> uh, one of the little rubbish beaches on the South Bank was a beach in Australia. It's Australia, yeah. Uh, this year, I just got very drunk on camera. I drank the national drinks of each camp, uh, of each country as we went along. And uh, boy, were there a lot. Uh, <laughs> apparently, most countries have more than one national drink. Really? Uh, the UK has five. What are the five UK national drinks? Uh, beer. Yeah. Gin. Yeah. Whiskey, yeah. whiskey, yeah. and whiskey. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Northern Ireland, Scotland, and Wales are all whiskey, and then England is beer and gin. Uh, so I drank a lot. Um, but yeah, so we do that. And then uh, what we also do is, because in the real Eurovision, there's a wildcard entry, which for the past two years has been Australia. Uh, we have made an Australia team from the audience so wow. you just sign up yeah. uh, on the door and uh, you get to do it and both years they've won of course <laughs> they're the heroes yeah uh, so uh, last year it was a whole group we had like 14 names on the list um, I uh, we picked four of them at random they came up and did it this year uh, we only had 
two names put down and one of them was one of the acts that already performed. <laughs> so we only had one name left, but we still did it because that one name was Roderick. Roderick Miller, the legend that is. So I knew he wouldn't mind doing it. And so he came up and he did uh, a song all about kangaroos and it was incredible. Uh, and he bounced across the stage whilst our percussionist did a little like boing on the drums as it went along it was perfect and he won uh, it was absolutely great um yeah yes i very much want to get roderick onto this podcast to uh explore his I mind love roderick. he's amazing isn't he i think you need a few hours to explore roderick's mind <laughs> yeah i love him let's do a whole series yeah <laughs> um brilliant um so um that sounds great so you the, the big thing that you're kind of working on at the moment is the cabin. And I'm really excited about this, partly... Me too. <laughs> that's good. It's more important that you're excited about it, actually. My excitement is neither here nor there. But um, the idea of um, trying to do something with improv that isn't specifically comedy and the idea of trying to inspire, inspire fear, mm. I just think that's amazing. Yeah, it's... How are you going to do that? Um, well, it's been a real learning curve. Uh, so we've had a month or so of rehearsals twice a week and a lot of it has been discovery because I haven't just been able to go in and say, right, you guys, it's not like um, you guys were doing a, an improvised musical, but this is the slight difference. So we all know what we're doing for the most part, but let's just practice this skill and then we can just do runs and mess about. Um, there's been none of that. It's been a lot of this, a lot of picking apart the genre, what's important about it, what's in the, what conventions can we keep and go, what conventions should we throw away. So, for, for instance, there's a lot of um, uh, horror as a genre. Uh, it, fortunately, I've studied it. Uh, I did a fil- uh, an MA in film and TV aesthetics, so I studied horror genre as part of that. Uh, and it's it's really rooted in like Christian morality. Oh, really? So, yeah, so, uh, and Christian ideals and stuff. So if you look at, uh, Frankenstein, for instance, it's the whole idea of not needing God, being able yeah. to create man yourself. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, the Frankenstein films then take that further by look, uh, almost as queer theory, taking it on from that. Um, then you've got... Uh, so th- there's this Christian morality and everything. So sin equals death, basically. If you sin, you die. So it's penance. And so it's looking at how to bring that in uh, making sure there's sin, so characters that die don't just die. Hmm. They have at some point sinned. There also is always an element of choice. So you you have to give the characters the choice to not sin or the choice to not meet their doom. It can't just be, uh, stab, stab, stab. <laughs> there has to be some element of that. This is why you get all those uh, movies, even modern ones, where it's let's play a game. Yes. Or, you know, there is a way out of this. Yes. Um, it's still that undercurrent of Christian morality, uh, Old Testament Christian morality. So keeping that, and then it's the things that are recognisable from the genre, specifically from the claustrophobic horror genre, uh, that, for instance, Cabin in the Woods, um, Friday the 13th, all of that sort of thing, where you're locked in somewhere, uh, insidious, the, the visit... Can, can go on and on and on and on. Uh, and one of the things that's really synonymous, especially with the the ones where they actually go to a cabin, which is like we're doing and Evil Dead and all that sort of thing, is you have these five archetypes. Luckily, they're spelled out for us in uh, Cabin in the Woods, and we're saying that we're another franchise of it essentially. Oh, nice. So we we've got the man in the in the tie that's oh, controlling it and yeah. all that sort of thing. Uh, so you've got your five um, archetypes. Uh, we have called them, we've renamed them for various reasons. We've called them the scholar, the fool, the socialite, the jock, and the innocent. So you want to have all five of those recognisable because they all have different strengths. So uh, the jock, for instance, isn't very bright, but he's got a lot of muscle and brawn, so he can solve things by punching a hole in the wall or yeah, you know, yeah. whatever, fighting his way out. The innocent can solve things through their morality. No, we shouldn't be doing this, all of that sort of thing. Uh, 
where it gets really tricky, we found, is from is through gender. So I really don't want to do the show where there is a slut character who's this nothing female character that is just there to you know wanting to have sex with guys and all that sort. Of, I don't want to do that show. Mm. Like you know that's terrible. So what we decided very early on is that we were going to everyone plays their own gender. So it's convincing. Uh, I think it's really hard to play cross-gender convincingly and we need it to be convincing and grounded. The audience need to care. So we're, everyone plays their own gender, but these characters, these archetypes that are usually specifically female, specifically male, are open to anyone. Yeah. So anyone can be the jock, anyone can be the socialite, and that's why it's called, that's one of the reasons why we called it socialite and not the slut, because um, the, or the, the whore, as I think it's, uh, called in Cabin in the Woods, because the, it firstly opens a connotation of female and promiscuity and all of this, and I don't think it is that. I think I think it is sometimes, but I think the biggest strength of that character is that they uh, they can use their interpersonal skills, their social skills, and they can manipulate people for good or bad effect. So so that's why we renamed it the socialite. Uh, as opposed to the whore, and so they, they it becomes a positive character and a character that both our male and female cast members can drop into easily without just being like the, so your mum's really hot, <laughs> if like they're a guy or whatever. <laughs> so yeah, uh, th- those have been the, the real things, and it's then just trying to keep it grounded and get try and get the audience to believe in the character's fear. So it's a lot about getting the cast to actually feel scared and stuff like that. Jonah did a really good sort of acting workshop from his drama school days with them. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be really interesting. Mm. Um, I don't, I don't want to say, oh, it's going to be really good or whatever, because I'm biased because <laughs> I directed it and it's sort of my brainchild and stuff. But uh, I think it is going to be really interesting because there is improvised horror out there and I think it is something that we are starting to get to grips with, especially in London. There's now three of us, really, groups that are doing uh, improvised horror and we're all doing it in different ways. And so it's, I think it's really interesting to see how we learn that stuff. There's, there's so many improvised musicals that I feel like there's not a lot to learn anymore about improvised musicals as much as there is m- more to learn about your brand of it. Your right. So, you know, with Music Box, we're always learning more about who we are as a group, as a company, uh, the direction we want to go in. But it's not necessarily learning more about what is a musical and what is an improv musical like. I think people have known that for years. Hmm. Uh, whereas this is all new for horror. Hmm. So how do you act scared? Or how do you act scared in the cabin? Um, well, I, I'm going to tell you the same thing. I taught uh, screen acting for two years at University of Hertfordshire. I'm going to tell you the same thing I told my students. Don't act, be. Right. So the way to act scared is to be scared. You have to force yourself to see the things that are happening and actually feel unsafe and scared which is really weird um there's a lot of really weird stuff that we've had to get our heads around so like that having to force yourself to feel unsafe with the people that are around you but also um ignoring people that are around you because quite often you have the thing of i think we should turn back or uh something creepy will happen and then someone uh, in the group will find a logical explanation for right, it. Right, yes. Uh, or th- someone in the uh, group, rather, will be uh, will say, no, this is this is bad news, this isn't good. And then you have to ignore them, be like, it was the wind, mm. whatever. So it's trying to negotiate around things like that has been really interesting. But yeah, in terms of uh, how do you be scared, how do you act scared, I think you don't act. I think you just have to, have to be as much as you can. That's really... Like artsy fartsy. Yeah, I know that's exactly what that's exactly the sort of answer we want. This <laughs> As I sip my mug of old grey. Yes, no, no, oh, that's really interesting. So, is there? Are you following a, some sort of structure then? Because you've mentioned this sort of, sort of, um, I'm sort of thinking about when in the cabin of the woods 
they meet the creepy guy at the petrol station mm. and they says, well, it's a whole Dracula thing, isn't it? It's like, don't go up to the castle. Mm. So is there a structure that your show is following and at certain points you need to negate the horror and then it comes to a climax or...? Sort of. We've got a, we've got a structure in mind, but it's n- we don't stick to it 100% because I, I hate being prescriptive mm. like that. Um, so we've there's basically... Uh, a really good book by um, Blake Snyder, a screenwriting book called Save the Cat. And in it, he spells out the structure of every movie you've ever seen uh, and categorises them. And this sort of movie falls into a category that he calls uh, Monster in the House. So it's, And it, it goes from everything from Evil Dead to Home Alone. You know, <laughs> you're stuck in a place, and Jaws even. You're stuck in a place, bad guy, bad thing after you, yada, yada, yada. So we looked at what he spelled out, how he spelled out that structure. And we said, okay, so what does this translate to? So we looked at Cabin in the Woods and we were like, how does Cabin in the Woods follow this? What does this mean in real terms? And then we then hacked bits away either because um, they're just too hard to do, (laughs) improvising, (laughs) Um, you know, at the end of the day, we don't have the benefit of writing. So, you know, the, we got rid of some things because that. So we know Japanese ghost story interludes then. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, you can't just suddenly throw <laughs> stuff in. So uh, we had to look at that. We had to look at which bits served the story most. We had to look at which bits we could condense together for time. All that sort of stuff. So we've got this pretty relatively simple structure but basically, all it is, is it's, we have to meet the people and care about them, give them a choice whether or not to go, get them there, then stuff happens while they're there. We make it as hard as possible for the character that we like the most. So maybe we kill everyone except them, maybe we nearly kill them, maybe we torture them, like whatever. You know, we have to make it as hard as it possibly can be for that character and then they have to solve the problem. So that solution can be them dying. It can be anything, like them unpicking it, escaping, whatever. Uh, but there has to be some sort of resolution solution. Um, and then that's it, really. It's, yeah, it's just basically get, who are we getting to the cabin? And then when they're at the cabin, making life horrible for them. So yes, it's that stuff happens bit that I'm particularly interested in exploring. So mm. you've got the five cast members. Mm. Uh, five plus. Five, oh, right. So that's kind of what I was thinking about. Because so, I was thinking if you've just got the cast and they're playing those five archetypes, how do how does bad stuff happen to them if they're all playing those characters? Yeah, so we've, we've made a rule through uh, experimentation that uh, any... Any villain, monster, anything nefarious that isn't humanoid, uh, we don't see. Right. Because it would be... I keep using the, uh, the, the example of a jellyfish monster. Right. Because so, we're taking from the audience their real-life fears. Right. Yeah. And that's what's going to be the thing. Or that's going to be the inspiration for the, male- the malevolent uh, force, as it were. So if someone's scared of jellyfish, and we have a jellyfish monster as an example, that someone walking on stage going, right, wiggling their arms around, I'm a jellyfish monster. That's not scary. Exactly, yeah. So, um, you know, so we we can't have that. And um, (laughs) we we did a rehearsal where we had a uh, secret, like a haunted railroad underneath the cabin. And at one point, a train came over it. Uh, and if we had had like Jonah for instance if Jonah had decided to be that train it would be ridiculous <laughs> it would be absolutely ridiculous <laughs> so anything that's not human we don't see right so even with a cast of five we can see stuff right. but more often than not we have uh, a cast of at least six right so there's someone there to be the harbinger there's someone there to be, to either add colour to this thing that's happening or to be the thing that's happening, whether that's, you know, an axe murderer comes in or zombies or what, whatever. It could be anything. 
and you know there is that person to be able to do all that oh great but i mean and how do you how do you stop it from being silly you have to really commit to it like beyond you have to personally not find it silly so we've got uh jennifer who's in the cast she is uh, she did a really, really good Harbinger character the other day in rehearsal. And it was all like she was coming in and she was like having a go at these uh, young characters saying that they were going to go away and sin and have sex and then writhing bodies and sweat and all this sort of stuff. And it was really great. It was like so good until she caught one of the cast laughing and started laughing herself. Right. And as soon as she started laughing, this wonderful character became ridiculous. But until that point, even though she was still saying the same things, it was really convincing as this horrible, creepy character. I mean, we've seen that like old lady in the movies that comes on. It, it is saying all this explicit stuff that you're going to do and sin and all that sort of thing. And it's really creepy. Um, and it, the, the interesting thing is the rest of the cast can find it funny because... If someone came and said that to you when you're 17 at a bus station, mm. you would laugh at them. Mm. You know, you're, you're bolshy and it's hilarious and this person's a nutcase. Um, the, the important thing is that the harbinger or the character that's being ridiculous or whatever can't find themselves ridiculous. Right, yes. Then it gets locked in. Yes. Uh, as soon as there's a, a hint that they find it funny, then it all falls apart. So it's a very tricky line to balance. Yes. Um... And you talk about how the characters need to feel unsafe, whereas obviously the improvisers will, well, will feel safe. Well, or will they? Um, kind of what I'm exploring is that, okay, so how uh, boundaries is kind of what I'm asking about here. How do we, you know, because, you know, how do we establish boundaries? Because if this is horror, then horrific things could happen. And how do we make sure we're maintaining consent? Or do you sort of see what I'm getting yeah. at? Well, there's still the element of, you know, we're still people at the end of the day. And so it's, in terms of things like consent and stuff, by knowing our own boundaries is how we know where to draw lines with others. But it's also stuff like, so if something, uh, let's say that this creature, monster, whatever it is, this nefarious thing, part of its deal is to rip clothes off people. We're not going to do that. It's going to be the same way that you mind mm. dropping your trousers in a show or taking your shoes off. You don't actually do it. Mm. Um, so that's the usefulness of having really experienced improvisers is that you've already got this shared language almost of what you do and don't do on stage. And also, it's just like the, the simple thing of we're not actually going to kill each other. So it's, you're already doing things for pretend. Mm. So it's just about trying to do everything convincingly. There's been, there, there has been some contention with things like our perceptions of the archetypes and stuff. As we, especially as we tread our way around uh, things like... Um, gender stereotypes and stuff like that because I, I hate all that stuff and I, it should be an even playing field and all of that but the fact of the matter is is that films that we've watched since we were kids and all that have made you subconsciously perceive things as XYZ so it's easy for instance to perceive someone that's be uh, especially a uh, maybe a, a male character, a male um, improviser playing that sort of socialite character. It's easy to perceive them as being the jock, for instance, because there's a, there's a big social element to that character. But then vice versa, it can be quite easy to perceive um, uh, female improvisers that are playing like the jock or the fool, unless they specifically uh, mention sort of getting drunk or. Uh, playing sport or that sort of thing, things that really tie them down to one role, it can be easy to perceive them as that socialite character. So it's um, 
there has been some sort of negotiating, not I say negotiating, there's been sort of like, you know, long discussions about, oh, actually, what, what are these characters? Which have been for the better. I've definitely learned a lot about sort of how these sort of archetypes can work in general. Um, but in terms of like boundaries and stuff, especially physical boundaries, it's a lot about just having that trust in the other cast members and knowing that everyone has got this shared knowledge of, well, this, why would I do that? That's, that's not the way that works. Mm. Sorry, I was very rambling. No, no, it's cool, it's cool, it's cool, it's good stuff. Okay, so we've kind of talked about you directing um, a show and like to talk a little bit about you being a performer. Yeah. And what's your signature move? What what makes, so if, someone, if you did something in a show and what would people go, oh, that's Lewis, that's Lewis doing his thing, what's your... Um, I... So you had uh, James on before talking about robots, ninjas, and pirates. Yes. And within that, I am unequivocally a robot. Right. Uh, so I tend towards logic and stuff. So if my two things are, if someone comes in and especially someone like especially a pirate, so someone like James or Lenny Musebox Show, James or Andrew Gentili or. Uh, Rhiannon for instance if they come in and just drop this big bomb of whatever the hell that was (laughs) I almost instinctively my brain will go make that make sense so uh, that's what I do Um, I I think a lot of that is not just how my brain works but how I was taught short form uh, when I first learnt that you know following the rules of the game making things make sense within the rules of the game uh, so I, I think part of it is that. And the other thing is my brain tends towards, I don't want to say wits, because that sounds <laughs> like I'm being, um, well, like I'm, oh yes, well, I'm a very witty chap. This, this, is, um, this, this podcast is no place for modesty, <laughs> or otherwise. I think it's more smart arsery, though. <laughs> I think wit isn't even necessarily the right word. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, my brain tends towards being a smart arse, so I do... Uh, I will occasionally drop a pun or um, uh, a good rhyme into, especially into, uh, into a music box show, drop a, a good rhyme. I've got a, quite a good Rolodex of rhymes in my head. So um, I think that would be a, a Lewis thing. Some, having some really grounded scene in a comedy show and then all of a sudden I'll make a pun out of what's just happened <laughs> and then just carry on as normal. I think that's quite a Lewis thing. I mean, so do puns come to you naturally or is this something you've practised? Um, I think it's a bit of both because I enjoy, I find joy in bad puns. Right. So, well, because there's no such thing as a good well, pun. Well, I was just about to make that very point actually. Yeah, yes. so... All puns are bad. Yeah, exactly. So... I find joy in those in the in puns and it like it's it, it's like uh, a guilty pleasure, it's an <laughs> indulgence. So um, <laughs> yeah, so I I think. Sorry, what was your question? <laughs> <laughs> I was asking. Um, yeah, I was basically asking you what I asked James and was like, you know, what what are you, um, you know, what what are you really good at? Is what I'm asking you. It's like, and you were saying how you mm. make sense of things. Um, and you're also uh, smart ass, yeah, witty. Yeah, well, they, um, uh, when IO came over and did a week intensive in London three years ago, um, I was in Colleen Doyle's class, uh, Colleen Doyle of uh, Dummy and other wonderful things. And at the end, I, I said to her right at the start, I said, um, just so you know, I, well, I've been doing improv for a while now, uh, at that point, it had been something in the region of five years. So I really want you to, at the end, give me a really harsh note. Oh, yeah. I want you to tear me apart so that I can go away, put myself back together and be better for it. Because I'm, I'm really not into the whole, oh, yeah, you did really great like in a class. Because, well, if I did really great, what was the point of me coming? Well, like, I, I, I agree, but I also disagree. I think there's a time and place for it. Yeah. Like, if, if I take I a beginner's yes. class, I'm not going to be like, you all suck! You don't even know what yes and is! <laughs> um, you know, it's... 
I think there's a time and place for it. But for, for yeah. me personally, having improvised for this long, I want to know where I'm going wrong. Yes. And I want to know those bad habits that I have so that I can improve them, get better at them and all that. And so uh, on, on the last night, we're, having, uh, we're all at the old nursery digs and uh, we're all drinking in our corner. I said, Colleen, this is it. This is where you tear me apart. <laughs> I need you to give me the harshest note you can. And she just said, you're a fucking smart ass. <laughs> um, you know, and she, she was saying, and what she said is absolutely true. Is this where my brain goes to first? So, you know, at that point, I was absolutely uh, chasing um, laughs through puns and smart arsery and stuff and trying to be funny as opposed to following emotion and all that sort of stuff and relationship. Uh, and I, I think now I do go for relationship and emotion first, but there is that part of my brain that's still there, sort of as soon as sort of a few words are in play, like putting them all together. <laughs> we did a music box show not that long ago, which was uh, a, a, like a clear satire of the general election and stuff. Um, and But it was set under the sea, so it is fish having a general election. And I took so much delight in naming all the political parties. So we had the Liberal Democrats, um, we had the Conservatives, oh. UKIPPER. Oh. Uh, <laughs> so we had, we, yeah, we had all of these. And I, I took so much delight <laughs> because it's quite nice to just be able to say these things, hear the audience either. Like that, that you get two reactions for something like that. You either get oh, or you get hey! and uh, both. I take yes, the shoes exactly, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Cool. Um, and you're also working with Jonah as adult babies. Adult babies. Now yeah. I haven't seen you perform. Not I. No, well, then, yeah. <laughs> okay, no, that's a good point. Uh, so you don't record your shows? No, we don't. Um, we probably will. Um, I, I find I find recording shows really cringy, but for the exact reason that it's good to record <laughs> shows. Um, I, yeah, I hate watching myself back because I think one of the big problems with improv is you watch yourself back and you have all of this hindsight. Yeah. And so you go, oh, if I'd have done this, it was just like the last music box show we had. Um, I made a move right at the end of the show in the last sort of thirty seconds. And I thought the offer that I was making was really clear and was going to get Rachel to do this thing that would have tied it up, but without me going and ham-fisting yeah, it. Like, yeah. it had to come from her. And so I went and made this move, and she interpreted it in the complete opposite way, which is still right. The customer's always right. It was yeah. me that did the wrong thing. And so I know that when... Uh, James filmed that, so I know that when we go back and watch it, I'm going to be sitting there thinking, I shouldn't have done that. I should have done it this way. Yeah. But it's because of hindsight. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we don't, we don't record our shows, but we do have um, debriefs afterwards. But we, we don't have them for long. It's more of sort of, what, what do we like about the show? What are the issues? How can we improve them? Job done, let's have a pint. Right, yeah. I think you can really get... I made the mistake in the show that I directed in Edinburgh a few years ago uh, called uh, They Came Without a Script, an improvised B-movie. Uh, I made the mistake of calling that sort of post-show chat a post-mortem. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. right from the start, it meant that it was sour. We dwelled on things too long. We spoke about things for too long. And you just end up getting bitter about yeah, it. Yeah. And so I think you've got to really find the balance between... Uh, with notes and stuff uh, when I did the May Days in Edinburgh last year we'd sit outside after the show and we'd spend five minutes doing what they called the circle of awesome right, so yeah, we just yeah. all took it in turns to say the things that we thought were really great about that show and then that was it yeah. that was all we did and then we would either stay and drink or go and see a show or whatever and I think there's a lot to be said for for that because especially if you have a really bad show yeah. you know the things that have gone wrong yeah. um you don't need three people to tell you that. You don't need to dwell yourself on that. Um, you know, a lot of people say that you shouldn't feel the benefit or that like, you shouldn't feel happy or sad about a show uh, longer than the following morning. It's a certain American rule. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I think for a bad show, it should be even less. <laughs> um, like, I, you know, I, I've, well, at least, like, you shouldn't talk about it. If you spent until the next morning agonising over it, yeah. then that's an eternity. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, so with adult babies, we don't do that. We have a quick chat, and um, what did we learn about it? It's still a format that we're getting to grips with because it's, it's different for both of us, both as uh, we haven't improvised together for that long. Uh, me and uh, Jonah and I so it's finding out each other's sort of strengths and where we're going to go to and all of that but also just how that format's going to work Adult Babies Now is very it's very very different to the first gig we did which was after a four minute conversation in Edinburgh one of uh, at the nursery venue in Edinburgh one of Jules's uh, groups dropped out and so there was a slot and so we're like, yeah alright we'll fill it and we'd done a really nice uh, scene in the Maydays show earlier where we were those characters. So we were like, okay, well, let's explore what uh, what life is like as a baby. And we'll also do some scenes as other inanimate objects. So as cotton buds or whatever, ask the audience. And we did it like that a couple of times. And there, there was something that wasn't quite working. And so what we've hit upon now is it's now life through the perspective of these babies. So we'll sit and have a base scene, almost like the living room. We'll have a base scene with those two babies and they'll chat about stuff. And then like maybe we'll talk about, uh, so in one show they started talking for some reason about camels. They'd seen a camel on TV or in a book or something like that. And so then we cut to a scene of camels but it's what a baby would imagine camels yeah. are like. So they can talk, they can think, yeah. and all that sort of stuff. And then we cut back to the babies and then talk for a bit more. And then, oh, that's an interesting thing. What What is it like inside a TV or something? Uh, and then cut to that kid coming back. So, uh, And that seems to be working really well. We've got some more gigs coming up. Uh, and so, yeah, let's keep, keep feeling it out. And are there onesies involved? There are onesies involved. I think this is my problem with the show. <laughs> uh, yeah, Jonah wears a uh, pink onesie with stars on. Problem and, one. Uh, and a pink bonnet. Um, and I have a uh, horrible polyester pink romper suit with a bum flap. Problem two. Which is a uh, it's uh, it's a like fancy dress baby costume that you can get from a fancy dress shop. But specifically, it was my mum's. Uh, she went to a party with it, and then I saw a picture of it. And then we were doing this. still got that. Yeah, and funnily enough, she did. So yeah, I wear my mum's romper suit. Um, yeah. Well, that, 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 that's so wrong. It's No, it's just very wrong. Uh, and we, our walk-on music is the theme tune for Muppet Babies. <laughs> so... Um, so how has it changed now from the first show that you did? You said that it had evolved. Yeah, so the first show we did, uh, what we would do is we would do a scene up top with the babies, a scene at the end with the babies, and then we'd do two or three scenes in the middle where we were other inanimate objects. So we'd asked the audience for things from their uh, handbag or rucksacks. So we'd get one person from one thing from one person, one thing from another, and it'd be a scene between those two things. Then we asked for something that you would find um, in a room of your house. Uh, so it would, like, if we asked for a bathroom, it'd be like toothbrush and toothpaste or whatever. And then the last one, we'd asked for things that you would find lots of together. So cotton buds uh, or a bag of rice or something like that. And so we played grains of rice and that sort of thing. Right. Uh, now we don't do that. What we do is up top, we get a, a word. And then we do our base scene, and then we just talk until we find something that we think that'd be interesting to explore from the baby's viewpoint. And one of us will initiate that scene, and then when we're done with it, we go back to the baby, oh, right. find something new, go to that, back to the baby. So we keep returning to them. So it's it's basically a character version of the living room uh, format. So it's those two in their living room, as it were. It's just instead of it being us talking as real people, it's those two babies and their characters. So the living room format is... So living room format, you've got a, a sofa uh, on one side of the stage and you basically just have a group of improvisers sit on it and they'll take uh, a word from the audience 
and chat about that word. It's basically like a group Armando. Oh, right. So you chat about that word, and then eventually someone will find inspiration from something someone said, and go over to the other half of the stage and do a scene, and you'd go and join them. And when that scene, uh, to end that scene, rather than sweeping or anything like that, someone on the sofa will start talking. Uh, and they'll talk about something, a real-life experience that's been inspired by that scene or the conversation before or whatever. And you just keep doing that, uh, keep cutting from one to the other. So that's what we do, but instead of us talking about real experiences, it's the characters talking. Uh -huh. Cool, cool. So one, uh, you're, you're, a me you're a member of many groups. Yeah, too many. Too many. <laughs> too many. Well, I, I say that like I'm about to leave some. Treat me, keep keen. That's my, what I say. My wife's a bit of an improv widow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> she keeps reminding me. But, uh, yeah, there's just so many groups that do wonderful things, and so many. I've got quite an eclectic taste of you know skills and stuff like that. So uh, I like being in all these groups because they each flex different muscles. Right. Yes. So, uh, but yeah, I, I'm in quite a few of them. I'm a bit. I think there's also, I, it took me quite a while to get into one. After, right. after I moved back to London from university, and I'd been improvising for three years there, and I came back here, and no one wanted me. <laughs> um, no one wanted me, or I did do auditions, and people say, no, you haven't done. Literally, someone said to me once, you haven't done a class with the right person for me to take you onto this group. Really? Yeah, uh, I won't say who, I won't say what group, and I won't, I won't say any of that. But uh, that <laughs> happened, uh, and then other people were just like, well, if you want a group, you've got to form your own. I'm like, I don't want to form my own, because I'll end up directing, <laughs> but I need to learn, and, and all this sort of thing. So it took a while. Glitch was the first group to take me on. Um, Mike was looking for people to join that were improvisers and had a, an awareness of puppets. I've always loved puppets, been improvising, and he just did this call on Facebook, and... Um, I'd never met him or anything like that. I'd never been to a Hoopla gig. And I just sent him an essay where <laughs> I just said uh, about my improv, like credentials, as it were, which were pretty much non-existent apart from uni, and my love of puppets. And he gave me a go. And now, you know, what, four year, five years later, probably, I'm still a member of Glitch. So it's, you know. So how, how, how transferable are your improv skills when you're acting yourself to when you're working with puppets is there a lot of crossover it's all crossover yeah the there's nothing about improvising as a person that isn't also important when improvising as a puppet it's just that you have the extra thing of you have to talk and move through a puppet right so it, it's not that there's anything less it's just that there's something more so all the same things of playing a game being a character, physicality, um, having an awareness of narrative, uh, relationships, emotion, all of that sort of thing is not just in play, it's important, it's imperative. It's just that whilst also doing all of that, you've got a little furry bit of foam and fluff <laughs> on the end of your hand that you're having to control along with two other people. <laughs> so yeah, so presumably there's a, a period of training while you get used to doing that or sort of so mike directs it he also builds all of our puppets and everything like that and he his mantra with it which i think is very good uh, a very good way of thinking about it is he would rather have good improvisers that are not great at puppetry right and they will just get there over time yes so i think all of us that weren't puppeteers, a couple of a couple of the cast are genuine puppeteers. Mike has worked uh, with Disney. Uh, Yestin, uh, who's in the group, built and operated all of the puppets on Mongrels, and is a is an actual muppeteer. Yeah. Um, he's working on the new UK Sesame Street thing and crazy things. Um, so, but those of us that are improv first, as opposed to puppetry first. I don't think any of us can honestly say that we had a good grip on puppetry when we did our first few gigs. Um, I definitely did that. I don't think anyone else did. Uh, I think you just got to get on with it and learn. I, even now, after doing it for five years, I think I'm a, a high-end of mediocre puppeteer, <laughs> like probably... Uh, and that's me probably bigging myself up a little. <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I'm still I'm still by no stretch a good puppeteer. It's just that a lot of it now is muscle memory, and I yeah. can focus more on improv stuff. Brilliant, brilliant. Okay, 
Big final question. Oh, God. <laughs> what does the future hold for Lewis? Um, I think the future's going to hold a bit of a hiatus. <laughs> <laughs> um, my, my wife isn't, as we talk, nine months pregnant. Wow. So um, I'm, I'm off to Edinburgh in August. Uh, so it's June now. She's due any day. Um, I'm off to Edinburgh in August with Impromptu Shakespeare and Glitch. Uh, so I'll be doing two shows a day for a week, probably more actually by the time I'm there. And I think after that, I'm basically going to take until January off. Uh, I think just for the both mine and my wife's sanity. <laughs> because, you know, on top of all that, we're also going to move house and I'm starting a new job. So, you know, uh, I think I need some time for life. Yes. Um, but I don't, I'm not sure that'll last until January. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with uh, impromptu Shakespeare and keep coming back for all that because it's, it's my newest thing and it's the thing I'm least experienced at. So I need to dedicate as much time as I can to that. But yeah, I think until January, I'm going to sort of take it quiet. And then by then I'll be raging to come back. Um, imp- uh, da, 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 da. Improvision is back in July uh, at the Miller Comedy Festival. And then also we'll be doing more next year and everything like that. Music Box is ongoing, Glitch is ongoing, Impromptu Shakespeare is ongoing, the May Days are wonderful and ongoing. Um, yeah, I think everything's just going to be ticking on without me until January, and hopefully I can jump in and <laughs> say, Hi guys, I missed you, let's do stuff. <laughs> Yay, Yay for doing stuff. Yeah, it, it's, really, it's really hard for me, this concept of having a hiatus, because my mantra really is to say yes to everything, which is why... I end up doing so many things uh, because it'll just be someone will be like, like the Maydays will say, we need people to cover in Edinburgh. Is anyone free? And I'll be like, yes. <laughs> Lewis, are you going to Edinburgh? Now I am. Uh, that's genuinely what happened last year um, and stuff like that. So it's really odd for me to have to say no and have to say yes, but in January, uh, we'll leave it until then. So yeah, it, it, it's a very odd feeling for me to be winding things down for a little while and having to li- having to actively not take opportunities, yeah. um, and it's killing me a little. Yeah. But, yeah. but you've you've got your priorities right, and you'll you'll come back stronger. Yeah, absolutely. Improv yeah. will still be there. Yeah, Im- improv will still be there. The, the The thing is, is what's happening with improv is so exciting at the minute, um, because it's you know it's sort of a this is going to sound really poncy, but I think it is sort of a renaissance of improv as an art. And you've got the uh, Bristol Improv Theatre are, are buying their premises, which is so exciting. The UK's first uh, full-time improv theatre. You've got the nursery up and running in their te- like sort of temporary rented digs while they look for somewhere. You've got Hoopla doing amazing stuff and uh, improv on every Friday and Saturday, which when I started which wasn't that long ago in the scheme of other things was absolutely unheard of uh the miller was a tuesday or wednesday uh, i remember doing the first ever saturday show at the yeah. miller and that being like oh my god we've made it <laughs> um you know it, it's so weird and wonderful what's happening so it's gonna be very weird taking a back seat coming back and, and being like what exciting things you guys want <laughs> do while i was gone uh, yeah brilliant Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having that me. That was marvellous. Yeah, thanks. I made this. That's improv! <laughs> <laughs>